All right, I know you're probably getting tired of hearing this, but I just have to put out this disclaimer. It's kind of the nature of these episodes. There's a lot of material in here that you're not going to want to have to explain to children. And if you have a lot of empathy, there's a lot of material in here you probably don't want to hear. It's not worse than the Shiro Ishii episode, but kind of comparable. In fact, if you haven't listened to episode 23, Shiro Ishii was such a terrible human being, I don't even think you should listen to it. Just don't go back and listen to it. Whatever you do, don't go listen to episode 23 about the lab rat. In fact, I'm going to make sure that I leave episode 23 up on the feed just so you know not to go back and listen to it. And that'll be the same for this episode. Tough episode, difficult topics. But then again, it is a series dedicated to talking about the worst people in history. So not really sure how else to bring that to you. Sometimes in your search for happiness, you ponder the meaning of your life. And what is the truth? You sift your memory for beginnings. The truth. You send your mind ahead for directions. Truth. But all you really know is now. And you are lost in the present. And what is the truth? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Hello, and welcome back to Know Thyself. If this is your first time listening, this is the podcast where we try to figure out who we are by looking at where we've been and what we've done. You know, I've never thanked Pontius Pilate and the cowboy from Mulholland Drive for introducing this and all the monologue episodes, so just want to shout out to them. We're now descending a little bit further into the sewer of human depravity that is the top five worst people ever to inhabit the planet. Last time we talked about Shiro Ishii, the one-man plague from Unit 731, and one of the vilest creeps that's ever walked the planet. And if he's only number five then you can imagine what numbers one through four might be like. And I just have to say this, for those of you who are wondering, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are not going to be anywhere in the top five. So I know that about half the United States wants one and half the United States wants the other. But by no criteria that we've discussed, do they even come anywhere close to inhabiting this rarefied air? So at least on Know Thyself podcast, they won't be here. Maybe some other podcasters putting together a totally different list, like the most ham-fisted, clumsy, schlock-peddling money grubbers in history. And maybe they'd make that list. I don't know. I tend to really even doubt that. We tend to get our perspective skewed by whatever is happening at the current moment. I mean, a lot of people see that Donald Trump is over the top with his nativism and his populism. But this guy's a carnival barker compared to Andrew Jackson. And so it is with so many of these things. In fact, this episode I want to dedicate to all the people living in first world privilege, prosperity, and peace who think that the end of the world is nigh because times are getting so bad. They point to some inconsequential social ill, or they might point to the fact that traditionally marginalized groups are actually asking for rights. And they wring their hands and rip their garment and say that the end is close. Talk about a skewed perspective. I mean, this could all change at any moment. We could be dropped right back into the abyss. But you've got to be grateful for the calms between the storms. And maybe this episode will remind people somewhat what real trouble and real suffering looks like. So there you go, bringing you the story of the fourth worst person to ever skulk his way across the globe is actually my way of being a benefactor to humanity. Now at the beginning of this episode, I have to invoke some variation of Godwin's Law. Have you ever heard of Godwin's Law? That's the law that states roughly... 
if you're talking with someone or arguing with them online, that the longer the discussion goes on, the higher the probability that someone will call someone else Hitler or a Nazi. And if a discussion goes on long enough, the probability approaches one, in other words, 100%, that someone's going to call somebody else a Nazi or Hitler. And so, unfortunately, now it's time for me to play the Nazi card in my list of the 10 worst people ever to live on the planet. Frankly, I'm surprised I've lasted this long before playing the Nazi card. But if you think of all the atrocity types that people can commit, genocide is usually considered the worst. If you think of all the genocides, people usually consider the Holocaust the worst genocide. If you think of the worst group, the worst ideology in history, it's usually going to be the perpetrators of that genocide, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, known as the Nazis. So some of these words, like calling yourself a nationalist, has a history that might influence whether or not you want to refer to yourself that way. But I digress. In Ravensburg, a town in southern Germany, there was a grave that was thought to contain the corpse of a Nazi war criminal. And this wasn't just your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill Nazi war criminal. This was a Nazi who stood out from other Nazis. In fact, his deeds were shocking and offensive to other people in the Nazi party. This was a violent, necrophilic, sadistic, pedophilic sadist who didn't need the cover of war to commit his atrocities. In fact, he was perfectly capable of committing crimes and atrocities in peacetime, but he really hit his stride in the lawless chaos of World War II. There were rumors that this grave was empty or that it was the wrong person in the grave. Many rumors that he had survived, that he was living somewhere in South America, or that he'd fled to Egypt and then to Vietnam. And it wasn't a ridiculous thing to think because many other German war criminals had escaped justice, but the idea that this man could escape punishment for his crimes was simply intolerable to the victims and the families of the victims of the Russians, the French, and the Poles that he and his soldiers had raped, tortured, and killed. And those victims must have numbered in the tens or even hundreds of thousands. So, in response to these rumors and urban legends and tabloid reports of sightings, the Department of Public Prosecution in Ravensburg decided to exhume the corpse. So, in November of 1960, the exhumation took place, and luckily for all the thousands or hundreds of thousands of people he and his men had victimized, forensic studies confirmed that it was the corpse of this man, Oscar Derlewanger, the fourth worst man in the history of the planet. If you haven't heard of Oscar Derlewanger, you're not alone. In fact, when I was preparing my episode for number four, I was thinking I was going to have Joseph Mengele be the subject of the episode. Joseph Mengele is the doctor at the concentration camps who could give children sweets and toys one moment and then perform crippling, painful, or fatal experiments on them the next moment. And Joseph Mengele, like Shiro Ishii, was never punished for his crimes. And of course, as I was looking into Mengele, I came across the usual list of non-Hitler Nazi war criminals. Himmler, Eichmann, Goebbels, Mengele, Koch, Goering, and a few who are really in the know would talk about Richard Heydrich. But it took me a long time before I even came across the name Oskar Derlewanger, and when I did, I realized that I'd found the worst of the worst. An aberration among aberrations a moral monster in a party of moral pygmies. How do I describe Oscar Derlewanger, who I'll just call O.D. sometimes because his name is too long? Imagine if you took Elizabeth Bathory and gave her a whole battalion of troops to serve her every whim and gave them carte blanche to wreck whatever havoc they could among helpless civilians. Or imagine if you could give Jeffrey Dahmer an army and turn him loose in the masses 
Then you'd have some idea of who we're dealing with when we talk about Oscar Derlewanger. And you know, even historians and researchers, people who are usually pretty circumspect, throw moderation to the wind when they describe this guy. Steven Zaloga says, quote, He was a psychopathic killer and child molester. Richard Rhodes calls him, quote, violently sadistic. J. Boyer Bell describes his skill set as, quote, an expert in extermination and a devotee of sadism and necrophilia. That sounds like some kind of Nazi Tinder profile, doesn't it? Historian Chris Bishop describes him as, quote, the most evil man in the SS, end quote. And finally, according to Timothy Snyder, quote, in all the theaters of the Second World War, few could compete in cruelty with Oscar Derlewanger, end quote. So who was this Oscar Derlewanger? Well, he was drawn to soldiering for obvious reasons. He fought in World War I, he fought in the Spanish Civil War, and then in World War II. I couldn't find much out about his childhood and his parents. That would have been very interesting. We know that he was born in 1895 in Würzburg, and at 18 years old, he enlisted in the Prussian army in 1913. Now, Prussia is the German state that included Poland, which, by the way, is why Hitler felt justified in annexing Poland in the 1930s, trying to restore those Prussian boundaries. But O.D. becomes a machine gunner in World War I, and he's sent to the Western Front. There he participates in the German invasion of Belgium, and then moves with his unit down to France. In combat in World War I, as a machine gunner, he's wounded six separate times, but he never stops fighting. And because of his indomitable spirit, he's awarded the Iron Cross, both second class and first class. He gets two Iron Crosses in World War I. If you look at a picture of Oscar Derlewanger, you realize that he's very wraith-like, in more ways than one, but he was very slender and skinny all of his life, so his nickname was Gandhi. Not sure how Gandhi would have felt about that. But to give you a little more insight into his character, at the end of World War I, the German units were supposed to go report and surrender in different areas. Derlewanger's unit was supposed to go to Romania to surrender, but he refused to do it. In fact, he disobeyed direct orders to go to Romania and surrender. Instead, he led 600 men on a march right back into Germany, because by that time, Derlewanger just didn't care. In fact, according to his biographer, a man named Knut Stang, the experiences that Derlewanger had in World War I were the primary forces responsible for how Derlewanger turned out. According to Stang, quote, the war had terrible effects on his late teenager psyche and was the main factor that determined Derlewanger's later life and his terror warfare methods. In another place, Knut Stang explains, quote, his amoral personality with his alcoholism and his sadistic sexual orientation was additionally shattered by the front experiences of the First World War and its frenzied violence and barbarism, end quote. So in other words, O.D. was already an alcoholic and he was already amoral, but World War I is what turned him into just this empty husk, a man with all the moral complexity of a bull shark. After the war, Derlewanger gets into trouble again and again. In fact, the police describe him as, quote, a mentally unstable, violent fanatic and alcoholic who had the habit of erupting into violence under the influence of drugs, end quote. But Derlewanger does love that violence. So while he is trying to make a living, while he's studying at the university, he's also joining various paramilitary militias, and he's fighting. He's leading troops. He's fighting all over the place at the German Revolution, places like Saxony, Ruhr, Upper Silesia. And by 1921, he's commanding a group of students, a troop of students called the Highway Watch. On Easter Sunday, 1921, Derlewanger moves towards Songerhausen, which had been occupied by rebel communist militias. Derlewanger tries to attack 
Songerhausen, but it fails and the rebels succeed in cutting off his troops and surrounding him. Things didn't look good for Durlewanger's troops in 1921, but during the nighttime, reinforcements show up. And when the communist troops see the reinforcements coming to help Durlewanger, they run for it. But any of the communists who couldn't escape Durlewanger were slaughtered by him and by his troops. And during this operation, Durlewanger himself is actually grazed in the head by a gunshot. And when the Nazis gain power, they celebrate Durlewanger as the town's, quote, liberator from the red terrorists. Now, as I said, during this time, between his military exploits, he's studying at Goethe University in Frankfurt. He gains his degree in political science in 1922, and in 1923, he joins the Nazi party. During this time, he holds various jobs. There's not a lot of conflict for him to get wrapped up in. So he works at a bank, a knitwear factory, and, of course, he's also repeatedly convicted for possessing arms illegally. But he was also starting to establish a different kind of reputation for himself, according to historian Richard C. Luca. Quote, Though intelligent, Derlewanger was a liar, an alcoholic, and a pervert who molested children. So like I said, he didn't need the cover of war to commit atrocities. But he works these various jobs as a criminal, somewhat functional drunk up until about 1934, and it's not till 1934 when his actions really catch up with him. In 1934, he's working in some capacity with the German government. He's 39 years old, and he's convicted and sentenced to two years imprisonment for sexually abusing a 14-year-old girl from the League of German Girls. And in committing this crime, he also uses a government vehicle illegally and damages the same vehicle while under the influence of alcohol. Because of this conviction, Durlewanger also lost his job, he lost his title. In fact, his doctorate was stripped from him by Goethe University. All military honors, including his two iron crosses, were stripped from him as well. And think about this, he's kicked out of the Nazi party. He didn't have enough moral fortitude to stay in the Nazi party. Well, you talk about your wake-up calls. When even the Nazis are kicking you out because you're too depraved, you might have a problem. So Durlewanger serves his two years, and then soon after he's released, he's arrested again on similar charges of assaulting another young woman. And he's convicted this time of the assault and criminal recidivism. So he serves two years total prison time for this crime. It would have been longer, but he's sent to the Welsheim concentration camp. That was standard practice for deviant sexual offenders in Germany at the time. But O.D., Durlewanger, had connections. He had a friend. He had a sponsor, if you want to call him that. His name was Gottlieb Berger. Berger was the head of the SS office nearby, and he was a close personal friend of Heinrich Himmler. And Berger was a full-blown Nazi ideologue. He was drinking the racist Kool-Aid, and he was trying to get together a unit of men to serve in Spain to help the fascists during the Spanish Civil War. And he knows he has a perfect little fascist in Oskar Derlewanger. So Gottlieb Berger gets Oskar Derlewanger released from the Welzheim concentration camp and gets him reinstated into the Army Reserve, with the stipulation that he would go fight in the Spanish Civil War. And Berger also allows Derlewanger to join the SS. Now, what is the SS? I've used that term a lot. You probably know, but for those of you who don't, the SS stands for Schutzstaffel. That was the infamous Nazi protection unit. And the armed military wing of the SS was called the Waffen-SS. And it was a paramilitary unit. It was not the official German army. So Derlewanger joins the Waffen-SS, he goes to Spain and he fights, and between 1936 and 1939, this crazy berserker drunk soldier is wounded three more times. So by my count, we're already up to ten separate wounds that he sustained in war. And a little spoiler alert, that would not be his last either. Through all this fighting, Derlewanger had a dream, and that was that he could once again be reinstated into the Nazi party. 
you got to have a goal, right? So eventually, with the intervention of this patron of his, this burger, Derlewanger actually once again becomes a party member in the Nazi party. And along with this very dubious honor, the University of Frankfurt restores his doctorate of political science. So life is really looking up for Oscar Derlewanger at this point. And luckily for a man of his particular demeanor, he lived in a very violent time. If there had been perpetual peace, he would have overdosed on drugs, drunk himself to death, been imprisoned or executed for his perversions. But as it was, he's a soldier, he's a Nazi party member, he belongs to the Waffen-SS. So the Spanish Civil War ends, and very soon after that, World War II begins. And Erlewanger, of course, who loves to fight and kill, rejoins the Waffen-SS, and this time he's given the rank of Obersturmfuhrer, in other words, Senior Storm Leader. So the ranks in the SS are paramilitary ranks. They're not official army positions. So it's kind of like live-action role-playing, but with real guns and real killing. And the title Obersturmfuhrer, which means Senior Storm Leader, would have put him in charge of about 40 men, or a platoon. But because he is such an impressive Waffen-SS soldier, which means he is barbaric, and he has a complete lack of regard for his own safety, he rises through the ranks of the SS very quickly, and soon he's commanding an entire brigade. And this was no ordinary SS brigade. On the 23rd of March, 1940, Himmler tells the Ministry of Justice that Hitler has decided to give suspended sentences to certain poachers, especially the honorable poachers, whatever that means, But these poachers were going to have their sentences suspended, and if they fought bravely, they would actually be given a full pardon. And what was the thinking here? Well, Hitler thought, look, we have to have these men who fight through the forests of Bavaria and elsewhere, and what could be a better forest-fighting unit than a bunch of poachers? I mean, think about it. They can hide, they can track, they're marksmen, they're used to being kind of violent criminals. So let's have them go into the forest and fight. I mean, I just have to say, this really sounds to me like the idea of a two-year-old. This is a childish idea. But Hitler's the boss, so nobody questions it. So they let 80 selected poachers out of prison, and they send them to poacher training camp. After two months of training, 55 men are selected, and the rest are sent back to prison. They just don't make the cut. And on the 15th of June, 1940, the elite poachers unit of the Waffen-SS is commissioned. (laughs) Again, you just, you can't make this stuff up. But Derlewanger is put in charge of this special unit of pig trappers and rabbit shooters and stuff. And they are all sent to Poland together. When they get to Poland, they have 20 more criminals join the unit. There were some sane Germans at the time. And from the beginning, this unit attracted criticism. The Nazi party and the SS and the regular army, which is called the Wehrmacht, thought that this was a bad idea. The SS is supposed to be this elite force, and here you have a bunch of criminals joining it. So because of this pushback, the SS commanders played a little word game. They said, this unit of Derlewangers is not part of the SS, but it's under the control of the SS. But as the war dragged on and more and more German soldiers were dying, The need for criminals to fill their ranks increased, and so the unit actually became part of the regular SS. In fact, as the war went on, even the Wehrmacht, even the regular army, accepted criminals who had been convicted of minor offenses, but not Derlewanger's unit. His unit took in the worst offenders, including premeditated murder, rape, arson, burglary. He took in people who were criminally insane, violent paranoid schizophrenics. I love the description of this unit by the historian Martin Windrow. He describes them as, quote, terrifying rabble of cutthroats, renegades, sadistic morons, and cashiered rejects from other units. 
End quote. By September of 1940, Derlewanger's unit was over 300 men, and Derlewanger himself was promoted to senior storm leader by none other than Heinrich Himmler himself. And as the influx of criminally insane persons continued, the unit continued to grow, first into a battalion and finally into a brigade. But you look at its growth in this way. If you were on death row or if you were in prison for a long sentence, you had two choices. You could either serve out your sentence, which could mean hanging or life in prison or some other form of execution, or you could join OD's brigade and fight. So this is the original Dirty Dozen. If these convicts had only known who they were about to sign up with, they might have stayed right in their cells, because Derlewanger himself was about as brutal with his own fighting men as he was with the enemy. But we'll get back to that later. Let's go to June of 1940. His unit is assigned to go to Poland and take charge of a concentration camp, a forced labor camp of around a 1,000 prisoners. By July of 1940, he's been there one month, word of the atrocities gets to the local judge, George Conrad Morgan. Morgan investigates, and he's appalled by the actions that Derlewanger is taking with these prisoners. And he writes a formal accusation to the SS, accusing Derlewanger of wanton acts of murder, corruption, and Rosenschande, which is called shame, basically the crime of having sex with non-Aryans. But according to Judge Morgan, quote, Derlewanger was a nuisance and a terror to the entire population. Well, again, the old bring up a problem and you become a problem maxim takes effect, and Judge Morgan, the man who reported and accused Derlewanger of these crimes, is demoted and sent to the Eastern Front. And the man who was committing all of the atrocities gets promoted. Derlewanger's unit is reassigned on August 1, 1940, to Lublin, where he is to provide guard duties for what is called a Nazi-established Jew reservation, and Derlewanger's methods quickly come under scrutiny there also. According to the journalist and author Matthew Cooper, quote, Wherever the Derlewanger unit operated, corruption and rape formed an everyday part of life and indiscriminate slaughter, beatings, and looting were rife. So this time, an overseer named Friedrich Wilhelm Kruger from the SS was very disturbed by the Derlewanger unit's behavior, and he makes a complaint. And this man had enough power to actually do something, so Derlewanger's unit is taken off of guard duties at Lublin. The entire camp was actually disbanded, and Derlewanger's unit is transferred to Belarus in February of 1942. But for a year and a half, the Jews living at this relocation camp had to put up with Oscar Derlewanger doing things that I can't even report here. I mean, it should be evidence enough that a member of the SS, a Nazi, reported how offended he was by the actions of this unit. According to Peter Longerich, Derlewanger's leadership, quote, was characterized by continued alcohol abuse, looting, sadistic atrocities, rape, and murder. And his mentor, Berger, tolerated this behavior, as did Himmler, who so urgently needed men such as the Sonderkommando Derlewanger in his fight against subhumanity, end quote. In Forgotten Holocaust, the Poles under German occupation by Richard Lucas, Derlewanger is described, quote, as a sadist whose brutality was well known, one of those degenerates who in saner days would have been court-martialed out of the German army. It was here that the soap-making rumor began, the idea that Jewish prisoners were being carved up and boiled into soap. We also have eyewitness evidence that Derlewanger would strip and whip young women, then inject them with strychnine to watch them die. It was so bad that Friedrich Wilhelm Kruger threatened, quote, unless this bunch of criminals disappears from the general government within a week, I will go myself and lock them up, 
end quote. So in February of 1942, Derlewanger's unit is assigned to anti-bandit operations in Belarus. Now what does that mean? It means that Derlewanger's unit is being sent to the area between Poland and Russia, Belarus, to suppress partisan activity. In other words, people who don't like their Nazi overlords and want their freedom. And Derlewanger's unit is thought to be the perfect group to ruthlessly put down this insurrection. And once they get to Belarus, Derlewanger's unit pursues any suspected partisan without mercy. In fact, he couldn't be bothered to isolate try in a court of law, and punish individual partisans. Instead, he would annihilate the entire town suspected of harboring one or two partisans. His favorite technique was to copy the old Viking trick of the hall burning. In Bloodlands, Europe between Hitler and Stalin, Timothy Snyder writes, quote, Derlewanger's preferred method of suppressing partisans was to herd the local population inside a barn, set the barn on fire, and then shoot with machine guns anyone who tried to escape. End quote. When Derlewanger's unit had to move and they encountered a minefield, they had a simple way of dealing with it. They would round up innocent civilians and march them over the minefield first. Derlewanger's unit also took it upon themselves to murder Jews by the thousands, even if they were not suspected of partisan activity. In fact, in September of 1942, that unit murdered 8,350 Jews in the Baranovici ghetto and then killed 389 more people who were labeled as bandits, and 1,274 people who were just suspected of being bandits. Historian Timothy Snyder estimates that they killed about 30,000 Belarusian civilians. Other estimates are a lot higher, though. We do know that they sacked about 200 villages, and estimates put the civilian population of those villages at over 120,000 people. According to Snyder, quote, as it inflicted its first 15,000 mortal casualties, the Special Commando Derlewanger lost only 92 men, and many of them, no doubt, to friendly fire and alcoholic accidents. A ratio such as that was possible only when the victims were unarmed civilians. End quote. Now, we can say thankfully that at least there were complaints about Derlewanger's methods. A court was actually convened to try Derlewanger for these crimes, but... Unfortunately, Heinrich Himmler knew all about what Derlewanger was doing and intervened in his behalf. Instead of trying him, Himmler actually awarded him the Iron Cross in gold for the way in which he had suppressed the Belarusian partisans. As far as Derlewanger himself, he commanded the most criminal, heinous unit in all of Nazi Germany, and it was well known as such. And he was as merciless with his own men as he was with the enemy. He terrified them. He would beat them into submission. He would starve them, hang them do whatever it took to maintain discipline in a rank of very undisciplined men. You really get the idea when you read about him that Derlewanger is like the judge from Blood Meridian, like that brigade of scalp hunters that Cormac McCarthy writes about was based on Derlewanger's brigade. And who knows how long these atrocities would have gone on. Himmler wasn't going to stop them, not by a long shot. He was going to celebrate them. No, it took the approach of the Soviet army to put an end to Derlewanger's atrocities. So what's happening at the Eastern Front is about to affect Belarus. So after the Battle of Stalingrad, that ends in February of 1943, the Soviets and Germans take about four months just to regroup from their losses. So the Germans have been driven out of Stalingrad, driven out of the Caucasus region, but they continue to hold the Ukraine. And most of their forces are concentrated to the west of the city of Kursk 
in western Russia, and Hitler can't stand the fact that his troops had been defeated at Stalingrad. So he formulates a plan called Operation Citadel and decides he's going to hold the line and achieve a glorious victory at Kursk. Now the build-up for the Battle of Kursk is incredible, both on the Soviet and on the German side. The front for this battle is 200 miles long, and there are 5,000 tanks and 4,000 aircraft in place before it begins. The Soviets have created this incredible line of trenches and minefields and anti-tank barriers to slow the Germans down, but when the Battle of Kursk begins on the night of July 4, 1943, the Germans are very effective at neutralizing the Soviet minefields, and they go on the move. They attack the Soviet tanks. And after several days of the battle gradually escalating, the central battle finally takes place on July 12th near the village of Prokhorovka. And nearly 2,000 tanks clash all at the same time. 2,000 tanks! But unlike the Battle of Stalingrad, which dragged on and on for months, the Battle of Kursk is over fairly quickly. By July 14th, Germany is in retreat and the Soviets are pursuing them. And thus begins this long push of the Germans out of Russia back toward Germany with the Soviet army chasing them the entire way. And as we know, the Soviets would actually chase them all the way to Berlin. So the Soviets are advancing steadily through the summer and autumn of 1943, pushing the Germans westward across the Ukraine. And the Germans just can't hold the line. They're retreating too quickly. The Soviets are advancing too quickly. The Germans can't build a line, can't build a wall to stop the Soviet advance. And by November 6, the German army's southern group is in full-scale retreat and they'll be expelled from the Soviet Union entirely by early 1944. Well, the Soviet army marched into Belarus and routed the German army in 1944. And Derlewanger's unit, these misfits and criminals, these insane persons, suffer heavy losses because they have to engage as the rear guard against the Soviet army. Before the Russians came into Belarus, Derlewanger's unit had about 2,000 fighting men. And by the end, after engaging with the Soviet army, there are only 259 left. So with those 259 men, Derlewanger actually does escape. And his unit, after their retreat, undoubtedly with some heavy-handed discipline by Derlewanger himself, reforms into a brigade. And this brigade now is employed by Himmler to suppress what's called the Warsaw Uprising. In August of 1944, the home army of Poland rose up against the Germans. They're sick and tired of their Nazi colonizers. They hear that the Russians are gaining ground against the German army, and they decide that it's a good time to rise up against the Nazis. So Himmler sees what's happening in Warsaw, and he wants to suppress it, but not just suppress it. He wants to send a message. He wants it to be the most cruel, brutal suppression possible, and he knows just the man for the job. So to give you an idea of who Himmler was, he assigns Derlewanger's men to suppress the Moscow uprising with free reign to rape, loot, torture, and butcher. The historian Martin Windrow writes that, quote, In the summer of 1944, Derlewanger led his 4,000 butchers, rapists, and looters into action against the Warsaw Uprising and quickly committed unspeakable crimes, end quote. One example of these unspeakable crimes was the Wola Massacre, named for the Wola district of Warsaw. Up to 40,000 civilians were murdered in Wola in less than two weeks in August. And as part of this 40,000, part of this campaign of terror, 
Turtlewanger burned three hospitals with the patients inside and murdered all the nurses and doctors to the accompaniment of music. We have this first-hand account from a Belgian man named Matthias Schenk, who was traveling with Sonderkommando Derlewanger. He says, quote, After the door of the building was blown off, we saw a daycare full of small children, around 500, all with their hands in the air. Even Derlewanger's own people called him a butcher when he ordered them to kill them all. The shots were fired, but he requested his men to save their ammo and finish them off with rifle butts. Later, Derlewanger's men, quote, drank, raped, and murdered their way through the old town, slaughtering civilians and fighters alike without distinction of age or sex. Reportedly, quote, the Derlewanger Brigade burned prisoners alive with gasoline and hung people upside down from balconies. Once again, even the other Nazis found Derlewanger's techniques offensive, barbaric, and hideous, and the commander of all of the forces pacifying Warsaw sent a messenger asking Derlewanger to come and explain himself, and Derlewanger's men drove him off at gunpoint, refused to even go talk to the commander of the Warsaw forces. So was Derlewanger court-martialed? Was he hung? Was he punished severely? No, he was recognized. In fact, he receives a promotion to the rank of SS Oberfuhrer, and in October of 1944... Oscar Derlewanger is awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross. After they had raped, tortured, and killed every single person they could in Warsaw, Derlewanger actually led his men in joining the effort to put down the Slovak National Uprising, fighting against the Red Army in Hungary and in Germany. Finally, on 17th of April, 1945, he's wounded for the last time. Now, we've missed a couple along the way, because this was the 12th time he'd been wounded in combat. And this time he was sent to the rear and was not allowed or capable of continuing fighting. In the general chaos of the end of the war, Derlewanger goes into hiding. Luckily, he doesn't hide for very long. By June 1st, 1945, he's arrested, wearing civilian clothes and hiding under a false name in a remote hunting village near Althausen. No one who had suffered under Derlewanger's hands could ever forget what he looked like, though. And in a perfect piece of poetic justice... He's recognized by a former Jewish concentration camp inmate, captured and brought to a detention center near Althausen. So he's arrested on the 1st of June, and by the 7th of June, 1945, Derlewanger is dead. And a death certificate is issued by French authorities stating that he died on June 7, 1945, of natural causes. I think if they had changed that to natural cause and effect, it would have been a little bit more accurate. Because the rumors are obviously true that Derlewanger was beaten to death by his guards. In fact, in another little piece of poetic justice, the guards that are put over Derlewanger were likely Polish guards working for the French. So talk about getting hoisted on your own petard. Talk about the worm turning. And so, as I said at the beginning, many sightings of Derlewanger were made around the world over the years. Different tabloid stories had him escaping, joining the French Foreign Legion, fighting in Vietnam in the First Indochina War then defecting to Egypt to serve in Nazar's army. At the time of his exhumation in 1960, he was still officially wanted by the Polish government for the murder of over 30,000 people. But, as I said, forensics of this corpse proved that it was indeed Oskar Derlewanger, the fourth worst person in the history of the world. And after this bleak recounting of his crimes, I probably don't have to go into the reasons why I chose him. Again, this is a Nazi 
who makes other Nazis look fairly sane by comparison. And once again, I'm sorry to inflict this story on you. I told you five and four were going to be very hard to get through. Five was tough enough. Four was even worse, if you ask me. I have spared you so many details of Dirtlewanger's crimes. I've often said that if somebody tried to write a fiction book, but included within that book a narrative of how people actually behave and the crimes they actually commit, nobody would buy that book. If anybody tried to create a fictional character based on Oscar Derlewanger, nobody would believe that this person could even exist.